peoples of the worldwide federated internet what's good decided since I'm getting close to the end of the book of Exodus, I'm going to start my series on the book of Jonah. And the reason I wanted to do this is because I wanted some historical backdrop. I realized the first time I ever read through the book of Jonah, there's a lot of things I didn't know about the historical backdrop. I'm not telling you when you read the Old Testament, especially that you have to understand all that was going on in the background and all of the the Old Testament backdrop, the historical backdrop. But understanding that historical backdrop gives you a completely different view than you might have had before. When I've always heard or when I've heard the book of Jonah referenced, I always hear Jonah referred to as the disobedient prophet. And he was disobedient. There's no doubt about that. But that defines how people look at the book of Jonah. If you don't understand what was going on in the backdrop in Jonah, if you don't understand the Assyrian empire, if you don't understand what Nineveh represented, then Jonah's decision to disobey God seems so outlandish. Now I'm not telling you it's right to disobey God. I'm telling you that Jonah had a human response. I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm, I, I do not have a perfect body. I do not have a perfect mind. My intentions are not always, always correct, right? We don't have perfect intentions. When you read through the book of Jonah and you don't understand the things that I mentioned historically, I can definitely see how you view Jonah as this completely out of the way, disobedient prophet how dare he violate God? And, and rightfully so. I'm not saying that those things are not the case, but man, given the historical backdrop, I believe that I would have made the, the same exact rebellious decision that Jonah made. Because in my mind, I would have been like, oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? Just being honest with you. So we're going to go to the book of Jonah chapter one. And verse one and two, I'm just going to start with that. And then I'm going to go to a more historical backdrop to kind of give a little more context to what was going on. Because, again, I think that will help understand the environment, the atmosphere and some of the reasoning behind Jonah's decision. So let's get into this. Now, the word of the Lord came unto Nineveh, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Now, if you if you didn't know, which I didn't know this the first time I read through the book of Jonah, and I actually didn't know it up until about two years ago, uh, to my discredit, 
my Bible study is vastly different than it was after I got saved. So I'm looking into more things that I wouldn't have paid attention to before. Maybe it's just maturity, the length of time I've been saved, how many times I've read through my Bible. I don't know. Anyway, I looked into Nineveh. Little did I know that Nineveh was the seat of the Assyrian Empire. I didn't know this. I also didn't know where Nineveh was located. I'm going to get into some of that. The Syrian empire was very powerful at this time, extremely powerful. And that's also going to matter when we get into who I believe was the king of Syria at this time, because there's some controversy around that king as far as how his uh, kingship went versus the kings that were before and after him is vastly different. And there's a, 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 a God reason for that difference. But Jonah is told to go cry against the city of Nineveh. Their wickedness has come up before me. Now, the one thing I never asked, I'd never ask myself is what is this wickedness? Again, if you don't have a historical context, then it's just general wickedness. We know enough about the, the, um, the inhabitants of the earth at the time. And we know enough about many of the different uh, cultures to know that uh, they were pagan. They didn't worship God. They worshiped idols, human sacrifices, and a lot of that stuff. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that's a small thing, but I'm saying, what was it about this Gentile city, Nineveh? Remember, these are not Hebrews that God told Jonah I want you to go preach this message to these people. And I think there's a twofold reason that I'm going to get into in this study. And it, and a lot of it is based on historical context that, again, when I first read this, I did not have. So Nineveh, the seat of the Assyrian Empire. There were more than likely Jews, Hebrews in captivity in the city of Nineveh. So the people of Nineveh would have heard about the most high God of heaven and earth, the true and living God. They would have heard the accounts of uh, the Abrahamic accounts of the children of Israel leaving Egypt. Uh, they would have heard creation accounts. In my opinion, there's historical evidence for this. And again, through this, this uh, going through the book of Jonah, I would definitely cover some of that. So what I want to do with that historical backdrop I want to transition to some articles and historical facts about this time frame. Before I do that, let's 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 uh let's do this. I can't remember where exactly it's at in the book of in the book of Kings. I think it's First Kings, but we'll see at what time was Jonah around. It is second Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Now I'm going to, I'm going to kind of read through this because all of these things matter. Like I'm realizing the web of truth that is slung through the Bible. Like if you miss these things, if you don't connect dots, if you don't look at some history and what was going on at the time, there's definitely things that can be missed. All right. So Second Kings chapter 14, verse 25, he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of him. So who are we talking about? So um, uh, let's go up. 
It says in the verse 23 of second Kings chapter 14, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and signed uh, and, and reigned 40 and one years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant, Jonah. So Jonah was around during this time, during the reign of Jeroboam. He's the one that delivered this message. The son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gathafir. I'm going to read the rest because a lot of this kind of matters. Not kind, it does matter. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. My surmise is there were people among the children of Israel that were definitely true servants of the most high God of heaven and earth, true servants of God. And they had no leader, no helper, no one to deliver them from this dire strait. And God had mercy on them, even though Jeroboam was definitely not on his game serving God. God still delivered them. All of these things matter in the historical context. And when I started looking into the, the history of the Assyrian Empire, especially around this time, I'm not going to lie to you. I was mind blown at how the Bible accounts when you take the Bible accounts and you look at what was going on historically, man, you get such a complete picture. And I, I was really kind of mad at myself that early on as a believer, I missed all of this because I just I never thought to look into history around these times. I, just, I didn't think it mattered, man. I'm here to tell you this stuff actually does matter. If, if you want to get the greater context, I'm like I said, I'm not telling you, you have to know history, but man, is it so helpful? So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to transition to some articles and I'm going to go over some stuff about the Assyrian empire that you might not have known. All right. So first we're going to go over Nineveh. Uh, this is from worldhistory.org. Uh, Nineveh is in modern day Mosul, Iraq. This is another thing that I did not know. I wish that these countries weren't in turmoil and that I could actually go visit some of these places. I will tell you, I was in Iraq and I was in uh, one base in Iraq where it was a desert, like a straight desert. Like there was nothing in any direction, as far as the eye can see, from what I remember, it was an old, dried out lake bed or something like that. And there was a base right outside the gate of that base at one of the Iraqi uh, military checkpoints. It was like an oasis. There was like palm trees and it was green. Now, I'm telling you, this base was completely desert, sand everywhere. And there was this one patch of like green trees and it was crazy. I remember looking out the gate and thinking, man, what is that? 
And then I found out right before we pulled out of Iraq the first time, uh, there was some uh, some people on base, some of the people I work with that actually got to to tour that place, because what it was, according to the Iraqi guards, it was one of Abraham's wells. I have no reason to doubt that it, it more than likely was. But anyway, uh, so Nineveh, Mosul, Iraq, the city is still standing to this day. The Al uh, not Al Qaeda, um, ISIS actually year two, three years ago, blew up a it was a shrine to Jonah that stood in the city of Nineveh. And like I said, so much of this stuff I did not know. And. It makes me mad that I didn't notice earlier. Okay. Uh, was one of the oldest and greatest cities in antiquity. It was originally known as uh, Ninua, a trade center, and would become one of the largest and most affluent cities in antiquity. It was regarded highly by ancient writers other than those who created the biblical narratives which cast it in a negative light. Now, again, this is worldhistory.org, so you got to expect them to take shots at the Bible. Um, the area was settled as early as 6,000 BCE and by 3,000 BCE uh, had become an important religious center for worship of the goddess Ishtar. The meaning of the name is disputed, but most likely relates to the prefix Nin or Nina, which often appears in the names of deities, uh, Nin Hersag, Nin, Nin Nurtu, or Nin Nurta, among many others, and could have, uh, and could have meant house of the goddess or specifically house of Ishtar as the city was associated with the goddess from the early date. It came directly under Assyrian rule under the reign of Shamshi Adad I, 1813 to 1791 BCE, but was most fully developed during the Neo-Assyrian uh, Empire, 912 to 612 BCE by Sennacherib, uh, 705 to 681 BCE. Among the most famous Assyrian kings and closely associated with the city of Nineveh is mentioned in the Bible, most notably in the book of Jonah, where it is associated with sin and vice. The city was destroyed in 612 BCE by a coalition led by Babylonians and Medes, which toppled the Assyrian Empire. This was the seat of the Assyrian Empire, the, the city of Nineveh, which is, which is why Jonah was sent to this specific city. These things matter. And again, I did not understand this. If you, if you read through the book of Jonah without any historical backdrop, why he went to Nineveh, the reason, and I'm not saying you necessarily have to know that, but man, it opens the Bible up so much more when you understand that because you see God's 
hand working and exactly how God's hand was working. I'm going to um, read a little bit more and then I'm going to transition to uh, some other articles about Nineveh. Okay. Although the region was inhabited since the Neolithic period and civilization established by uh, uh, 6000 BCE, the first people known to live uh, live there were the Hatti. These people who built their great capital at Hattusa most likely constructed the first city of Nineveh. Uh, though what is uh, what it was called is unknown. This early city and subsequent buildings were constructed on fault on a fault line and consequently suffered damage from a number of earthquakes. Archaeological excavations have uncovered a number of cities which rose and fell on the site. The Akkadians took uh, took the rain took the region during the reign of their first king, Sargon the Great. 233, uh, two, 2334 to 2279 destroyed the first temple of Ishtar at Nineveh, possibly constructed by Sargon the Great, which, uh, which was rebuilt by the Akkadian king uh, Menish Tusu, 2270-2255 BCE, who also added on to the city. The Akkadians also associated the city with Ishtar and held it uh, and the region at large until the fall of their empire in 2083 BCE. At this time, the Hatti uh, regained their autonomy in the region briefly until, until they were overrun by the Assyrians and Amorites. The Amorites occupied Nineveh and added to the temple, leaving behind inscriptions recording other construction uh, projects, which were later demolished. The Assyrian king Shamshi-Adad I drove the Amorites from the region and established the Assyrian capital at Asher, while Nineveh flourished as a trade center. When Shamshi-Adad uh, I died, the region was conquered by the Amorites under King Hammurabi of Babylon, 1792-1750 BCE. After Hammurabi's death, his kingdom fell apart and Nineveh was taken by the Assyrians under Adasi. Uh, 1726-1691 BCE, the territory was not fully secured by the Assyrians, however, until the reign of the great king Adad-Nuari I, 1307 to 1275 BCE, who expanded Assyrian rule and established the boundaries of the Middle Assyrian Empire. King Shalmaneser I, 1274 to 1245 BCE, builder of the city of Kalhu, 
uh, built a place and temple at Nineveh, refurbished the city and is thought to be the uh, res- thought to be responsible also for the first walls surrounding the settlement. Nineveh was caught up in the power struggle between the Assyrians and the Hittites, Mitanni and Hatti until the Bronze Age collapse uh, of 1200 BCE, during which the entire region suffered in one form or another. The Assyrians emerged through the period intact, however, and their empire grew under the reign of Tiglath-Pileser I. Uh, 1115 to 1076 BCE, all of these things leading up to, uh, what happened with Jonah, it matters so much. And it's so crazy when I started going through this history and getting certain details, I'm like, yo, how come I didn't know any of this stuff? So let's, let's learn some about the Assyrians. Because that's another thing that people don't don't realize. Let okay, so let let me do this. I'm gonna read this article from uh, Medium.com. You must understand how brutal the Assyrians were, and this is something that I don't think many people know. I don't think many people know of the Assyrians were brutal. I'm saying brutal. Their reign and their rule was a reign and a rule of straight, complete, and utter terror. Terror. They terrorized everyone around them. It was crazy. Okay, so let's go back to this this article, medium.com. The Assyrians, the appalling lords of torture. Impalement, uh, flaying, and amputations were the trademark of the Assyrians. So when the Assyrians came in and took over and took lands and took captives, this wasn't a small feat. This was, if you saw the Assyrians coming, you would probably rather kill yourself than be taken captive by, by the Assyrians. They were not playing around. Assyrians created an enormous empire that mastered the art of war Unfortunately for the enemies of the Assyrians, uh, for the, for their enemies, the Assyrians mastered also torture techniques and they bragged about it. The, and if you're, if you're watching a video, you can see this, uh, this inscription, uh, the Assyrian relief depicting the torture of, of the defeated enemies They're brutal people like this. This was not a kind time. Uh, it says the Assyrians depicted the torture in great detail on the walls of the imperial palaces. They created tablets containing every single punishment the Assyrian army carried out. They cut off the limbs, gouged out eyes, and then left those poor victims to roam around. Those poor people serve as a living reminder of the Assyrian cruelty. Uh, the Assyrians intentionally advertised their brutality as part of the psychological warfare. So psychological warfare is, is old. This is not a brand new technique. <laughs> Demoralizing your enemies has been done, you know, time on in. 
the cruelty didn't hurt only the enemies of the Assyrian soldiers. The cruelty didn't only hurt the enemies. The Assyrian soldiers suffered too. The soldiers were uh, seeing and hearing the ghost of killed enemies. These were the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. So stretching back even back then. And, and here there's a picture of uh, on a tablet, I'm guessing of Assyrian impalement, man, they were, they were definitely masters of the cruel death. Uh, the Assyrians were proud of the mass executions. They loved to impale their victims on large stakes. Such, uh, such sites instill terror and fear into the rest of the population for the Assyrian Kings. It was a showcase of their power. The stake was driven into the body under the ribs and not through the, uh, and not through and not through the anus as it was customary in the medieval ages. This is grotesque stuff. I, I forewarn you, uh, the victims weight. uh, the victims weight, caused the spikes to protrude deeper and deeper into the body. The slow death was terrifying. 2000 years later, uh, Vlad, uh, Tepes, AKA count Dracula would learn from the Assyrians and impale thousands of Ottomans. Although the impalement was the Assyrian preference, they also invented crucifixion. How interesting is that? Just to increase their cruelty a bit more. Flaying the victim's skin was uh, uh, flaying. The victim's skin was hung on the city wall. The Assyrian kings were found were fond of flaying the rebel leaders. The flaying process would start at the buttocks, thighs, or lower legs. They would cut the skin in strips and pulled it off the living victim. The victim's skin was hung in a visible place as a reminder for the rest of the citizens. Um, uh, let's see, Assyrian king. This is a, I guess this is a quote from Assyrian king, uh, Asher, Asher Nespiral II, 883 to 859 BCE. I let the leaders of the conquered cities be flayed and clad the city walls with their skin. This is gruesome stuff. And they're showing some different, uh, I guess, tablets with depictions of Assyrian tortures. Crazy. The Assyrians force the captured nobles to grind the bodies of their ancestors. By doing so, they erase the evidence of their legitimacy to rule. This part of psychological torture is showed um, it, it, this is part of psychological torture. This was part of psychological torture. It showed the absolute power the Assyrian Kings had over the subjugated nations beheading soldiers. This is another, um, 
depiction on a tablet uh, for those, of course, who are watching. Soldiers decapitated the defeated enemies and built pyramids out of their heads. That is insane. The Assyrians also uh, decorated trees with heads of their enemies. One of the Assyrian accounts even boasts of the necklace made by severed heads. This is crazy. Amputation of limbs, blinding, castrating, and burning people alive. The Assyrians were very creative about the brutality. They would cut off legs, arms, noses, tongues, ears, and testicles. They would gouge out the eyes of their prisoners. They would burn small children alive. The Assyrian army was a professional army and it was well organized. So their cruelty and brutality were systematic. Ooh, the Assyrian kings used brutality as a weapon. The psychological warfare worked. The news of extreme terror spread fast. The entire cities surrendered and in the mere sight of the approaching Assyrian army, the Assyrian kings bragged about their cruelty. They regarded it as their divine right. And this is a quote from Assyrian king uh, Ashur, Ashurbanipal, 668 to 631 BCE. I entered that city, its inhabitants I slaughtered like lambs. Eventually, the extreme cruelty backfired. The Assyrian Empire, weakened by the constant war, was attacked by many enemies. The Assyrians vanquished and nobody missed them. Uh, in the conclusion of the article, the brutality of the Assyrians was extreme. Even for ancient standards of cruelty, the Assyrians knew the brutality was a very effective tool of the psychological warfare their opponents thought twice before they started a war with them. Now keep in mind, this was enemy to the children of Israel. This is the people that Jonah was sent to preach to because their wickedness had come up before God. So God sent Jonah and said, yo, you need to tell them their wickedness has come up before me and they need to repent. Now you got to think in Jonah's mind, imagine being Jonah and knowing that for years, this, what I just described to you is what the Assyrians had done to your people. You've heard stories. You might've seen some things. Your father might've told you stories. Your grandfather might've told you stories. And God is telling you, go preach to these people. Now, you know, the most high God of heaven and earth, and this has gone over in the book of Jonah. I'll get to that eventually when I go over the book, but you know that God is full of mercy. So imagine being Jonah and thinking, if I go preach to these people and they turn and repent, God will have mercy on these people. These people have burned children and paled people, cut off heads. They've tortured us. They've warred against us forever. And I'm going to go preach to these people and then they're going to turn and get favor from God. I'm not telling you Jonah is right. I'm telling you when you have all of this historical context, you probably won't look down on Jonah so piously. I'm not saying what he did was right, 
he was definitely rebellious against God. But I'm telling you with this in context, it's like, man, I, I don't know. I, I might have done the same thing Jonah did. I might not want to come down on homie so hard because I would probably do the same thing. Here's another interesting thing. Again, historical backdrops. So the Bible is always doubted. People doubt the Bible. People doubt what it says. Uh, people doubt its validity. And many times what has happened throughout history is it has been the assumption that none of what's discussed in the Bible, the kings that are mentioned, uh, you know, the kingdoms, none of these things are true. And there's always some historical finding that gives validity to the Bible. One of those things is the black obelisk. Why this matters is the black obelisk depicts uh, I'm going to read this article, but it depicts King Jehu paying tribute to an Assyrian king. So it gives us the timeline of Jehu. Right. So moving from that timeline of Jehu on down, you get a you get an idea of the of the timeline of Jonah and who was the Assyrian king at the time moving from Jehu, you know, on down. But anyway, uh, I'm going to I'm going to read this article. It's called The Black Obelisk. Uh from as far back as the 2nd millennium BCE, Assyrian kings would detail their achievements on stone panels and monuments adoring palaces and public spaces. Several uh uh Judite or Israelite kings are named in these royal inscriptions, but only one was ever portrayed pictorially. This honor, or perhaps disgrace, depending on your point of view, goes to the Israelite king Jehu. In a fame, uh, Jehu is a fame is famous in the Bible for bringing the dynasty of Ahab to an end. Second Kings chapter nine tells how Jehu, one of the commanders of the Israelite army, was anointed by a servant of the prophet Elisha as king of Israel. Jehu proceeded to assassinate both Joram, uh, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, a son and grandson of Ahab, respectively, and then to wipe out most of the remaining family of Ahab. Jehu went on to initiate his own dynasty and four generations of kings of Israel were descended from him. It was under these uh, auspices. It was under these auspices that Jehu, in 841 BC, took a tribute to the Assyrian king Shalmaneser III, who reigned from 858 to 824 BC. Shalmaneser had been campaigning to the north of Israel against King Hazel uh, of Aram, Damascus, and Jehu was undoubtedly attempting to keep Shalmaneser from attacking Israel. Now, the reason I read that is after reading about the appalling nature of the Assyrians, you can kind of understand why Jehu would want to um, kind of put the 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 Assyrian king at ease like yo we don't want no problems be now should Jehu have stood 
on on faith that God could deliver the the children of Israel from any of their enemies? Absolutely, he should have. And and I'm not telling you he's right. I'm telling you that with historical context, people's decisions make more sense. They were not right, but they make more sense. I understand why they did it. Because you have to realize we all have human responses. We can all act like we're superhuman and I would do this and I would do that. But let's keep it real. You're This is back during this time and you know about the cruelty of the Assyrians. What are you going to do? I would like to believe that I would stand on God's promises. I honestly would. But I'm telling you, I'm not sure that I would. All right, I'm going to read this other article kind of, you know, briefly going over a little bit about the Assyrians. Not too big. Uh, It's from NationalGeographic.com. The Assyrian Empire started off as a major regional power in Mesopotamia in the second millennia BCE, but later grew in size and stature in the first millennia BCE under a series of powerful rulers, becoming one of the world's earliest empires. Assyria was located in the northern part of Mesopotamia, which corresponds to the uh, to most parts of modern-day Iraq, as well as parts of Iran, Kuwait, Syria, and Turkey. It had relatively humble beginnings as a nation-state early in the second millennia BCE. Its status underwent many changes, uh, though sometimes it was an independent state. It also fell to the Babylonian Empire under later uh, uh, empire and later to Mitanni, uh, Mitanni rule. But unlike other nation states, because of their technological advances in warfare, the Assyrians maintained their land while other states and empires rose and fell from power. When another group of, uh, when another group, the Hittites rose to power and overthrew Mitanni rule, it left a power vacuum that sent the region into war and chaos. This left the Assyrians poised to gain more power in the region around 900 BCE. A new series of Assyrian kings, beginning with Adad Nuari II, rose to prominence and expanded Assyrian borders uh, into a huge empire. Adad Nuari II and his successor used new warfare techniques to take over enemy cities one by one. The Assyrians had several advantages that they had been developing for generations. While other empires came and went, they were the first in the area to develop iron weapons, which were superior to the bronze weapons their enemies were using. Their skill at ironworking allowed them to make weapons and protective items more cheaply so more soldiers could use them. In addition, they were the worst. uh, They were they were the first army, excuse me, uh, to have a separate uh, a separate engineering unit, which would set up ladder uh, ladders and ramps fill in. Uh, moats and dig tunnels to help the soldiers get into a walled city. They were also among the first to build chariots, which provided greater protection on the battlefield. These technological advancements allowed the Assyrians to go on the offensive and attack neighboring areas for the first time, which led to the expansion of their empire. 
the Assyrian Empire maintained power for hundreds of years, but in 600 BCE, the empire became too large to maintain and it fell apart even after its fall. The empire's legacy lived on in warfare tactics and technologies that were adopted by later civilizations. All of these things matter. All of the things the Assyrians did, all of their cruelties. When you see all of this stuff and then you think about what Jonah did, I think then you begin to understand, okay, Jonah wasn't right. He was definitely rebellious, but I understand why he rebelled. I, I, I kind of see where his mind was going at the time. And I wanted to give that backdrop to the book of Jonah, because when you get into it with the historical backdrop, especially when you get into who was probably king at the time, man, this gets so good historically. And I, I love the book even more now after knowing a lot of these things. Anyway, y'all know what it is. Stay frosty, people.